Good morning. <clears throat> if you would, turn with me in your minds to think about the book of Obadiah before you turn there in your Bibles. If you think of the book of Obadiah, does anything come to mind? It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, and before we go into it, we're going to be going into the entire book and going through the entire book. You think, okay, it's one of those minor prophets. I don't really know much about it. Probably judgment, probably wrath. That's what a lot of the um, uh, minor prophets are about. But now turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah as we go on this exciting journey to be able to go through the entire book of Obadiah, see its themes, see what it is uh, going for, what its message is, not just for the people of its day, for its listeners, but also the message for us. Um, and I'm not going to be, um, I'm going to be reading through the whole book, but for the sake of time, I am not going to, um, I'm going to read through slowly and uh, showing you the analytical uh, part of it. But let me pray before we get started. Lord God, we are here in your house, here to worship you, here to learn more about you, here to analyze our hearts and see how better we can live our lives according to your law, how better we can live our lives in accordance with your Son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to have open hearts, open minds, to hear what you have to say for us. Lord God, I pray that you will speak through me. I pray that I will not speak my own words or my own truths that I have formulated, but instead to speak your truth, to speak your words, and to have no pride or selfishness um, in me this morning. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So a little context before we read through the entire book of Obadiah. Thank you very much, Andrew. Aaron. Context. This book was written around a probably, a, we don't exactly know when it was written. It was written probably um, from about possibly in 850 BC, as early as that, to maybe even 600 BC. So quite a like 150 plus gap of time that was written in. We know this because, or th that's our, our guess, because it was written during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So if um, you remember your Old Testament, that we have uh, Israel and Judah divided into two separate nations, and um, Israel falls off the deep end really quick, worshiping other gods, abandoning God, and they get captured by the Assyrians, um, and Judah remains for a little bit more. They hold on for a little extra time, but then they fall into idolatry and abandoning God and are conquered and exiled by the Babylonians. And so during this time of Babylonian captivity, where both Israel and Judah are in exile, a vision comes to the prophet Obadiah. Um, yes, this is a, Obadiah was given as a vision of judgment, specifically on the nation of Edom for stealing the promised land and taking advantage of the Babylonians and the Assyrians coming in and exiling Israel. So let's go through the book of Obadiah. And when looking at uh, minor prophets, we can divide, we should look for um, judgment, sin, and warning throughout our, our look through 
the book, and I will be pausing to point out these things. Starting off, Obadiah, verse 1. It's only one chapter. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Okay, we've got that section of judgment from the other nations coming to judge the nation of Edom. Next section. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest be set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So that is taught, clearly talking about the sin that Edom has committed of pride in their heart, thinking they're all that, hiding in the clefts of the rock, thinking they're um, soaring like eagles. And then at the end, we have another statement of judgment of God judging and humbling the nation of Edom, bringing them down to a lowly and humble place. Continuing to verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. This, these verses of 5 and 6, another statement of judgment of Edom or Esau they're one and the same, being pillaged and robbed, this prophesied judgment. Continuing to verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Another judgment of betrayal from your allies, not just other nations coming to war against you, but even your very allies betraying you, O Edom. Continuing to verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Temnon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. The judgment in verses 8 and 9 is about in a sense, chopping off the head and arms of the nation of Edom, cutting off their, destroying their wise men, their men of understanding, and their mighty men. If you've got a nation with no wise people and no strong people, you don't got much of a nation at all. Continuing in verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, we have this because statement, which is about the sin that Edom has committed, that is bringing about this judgment. Because of your violence done to your brother Jacob. Very important to see the sins there, to understand where Edom has gone wrong and why they are incurring this judgment. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Judgment of shame and being cut off. Verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, his being Jacob, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Another sin here being described that as the nation of Israel was being pillaged by the Assyrians and Babylonians, Edom comes in to do the same like the other nations. 
And now we have a warning in verse 12. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. These are warnings to not boast. In verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. We have this this, uh, picture here of um, the nation of Edom kicking Israel, kicking Judah while they're down, while they're being plundered and pillaged. They come in there also from the, the high places, from the Mount Esau, from the clefts in the rock that they reside, coming down to loot his wealth, to cut off his fugitives, and to capture the survivors and hand them over to their enemies. This is the warning. Do not do this. Don't kick Israel while they're down. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done it, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. We have a warning of judgment here. That The warning is that the day of the Lord is near. And also that what you do, as, as you have done, it shall be done to you. But this warning is not just for the nation of Edom. It's important to note that this warning is to all the nations. Zooming out a little bit. Verse 16. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Now, this is a judgment. If you imagine like a nation being symbolized in the imagery of a full cup just being poured out. That they once contained all of what that was in them. They once contained people and greatness and wise men and and structures and wealth and prosperity. But this judgment is them being poured out. Not just that, but other people drinking them dry so that they're nothing as a nation, empty inside. Judgment being taken advantage of in verse 16. In 17, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Here, so I mentioned three things that we were looking for in our initial read-through of judgment, sin, and warning, but there's also a hidden fourth one that you should always look through throughout the whole Bible, but especially the minor prophets, and that is hope. Or talk about the, the grace of God being in there. Hope inside of here. And that's what we have in verse 17, that despite all the judgments and and reflecting upon all the terrible things that has happened to Israel, to Judah, that we have this hope. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. The house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Continuing on in verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame. Now, this isn't like burning down a house in a negative sense. This is prosperity. This is fuel. This is that the house of Jacob and of Joseph being, they're both synonymous terms for talking about Israel. That they're going. They are not 
burnt out. They are not like a cup empty. They are a fire raging. And then that is contrasted. That's more hope, which is contrasted. And the house of Esau, stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. The fire of Israel shall consume Esau. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. We have another judgment there. Judgment of total obliteration. But by the house of Jacob. Verse 19. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the house of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of his host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. These last few verses, more hope. In the first part of verse 19, those in the Negeb, those in the Shephelah, those are outside places that the nation of Israel have been scattered to because of their exile, thrown aside to the corners of the known world. Those people who are far off shall come back, shall return to the promised land to take back what has been taken by the nation of Edom. So there's this coming back hopeful prophecy. And then in verse 20, the exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And all the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall go to the cities of the Negev. Okay, we got Negev mentioned twice there. So it's the, the hope for the exiles to return to the promised land. And then for those exiles to go out and rule and spread God's kingdom throughout. There's this uh, cool um, literary thing that uh, we can miss at the very end, right before verse 21 and through 21. Um, the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Israel, to, to rule Mount Esau. Now, there, the Negev is known for being a kind of desolate desert, so, which is contrasted with the Mount Zion. So from deserts to mountains, the kingdom shall be the Lord. Great hope here in this minor prophet. Now, so we kind of went through the book, analyzing it. Now let's unpack the message that is being described here. We're kind of going through a little Bible study at high speeds today. So unpacking the message, looking at all that we have gone through and divided up in this book, I think that you can further divide the message into three layers. Not like an onion, but like a cake. <clears throat> we have the bottom first layer talking about Edom as a nation will be brought low by God. And by other nations, oppressing them and betraying the nation of Edom. Edom being brought low is our first layer. Second layer, more broadly that we see in verse 15, all the nations will be brought low by God. 
And then the third final layer, the exiles will return and God's family of exiles will rule from desert to mountain. These are the three layers of the book of Obadiah that you can break it up into. Now, um, these exiles have gone through a lot. I want to talk about the exiles real quick um, as we're seeking to understand what Israel has gone through and why this is very hopeful for them. That they have been punished for their sin. They have been stepped on by other nations continually. They have been taken advantage of by Edom. Fractures, fractured, split, not just into Israel and Judah, but into all around, thrown to the ends of the earth. They have been humbled, and they are now exiles in their own land. They don't have a land to go to. It's been taken over by others. Okay, let's go to the first layer of our cake and eat it. Edom, living up in the mountain, Mount Esau. Now, Edom is synonymous with Esau because we learn in the Old Testament that just as Jacob, that Jacob had his name changed to Israel... Esau, Jacob's brother, had his name changed to Edom. So there is this connection, and there are many more connections like this in the Bible of two siblings, one remaining faithful to God and then another breaking off and their nation, their offspring, their spawn becoming a thorn in the side of the one who remains. Esau became Edom, became a thorn and a constant force against Jacob, Israel. So this family feud is talked about, and you can see that imagery in Obadiah. As Esau was talked about a lot in verses 10, and then at the end in verse 18, uh, we have Jacob mentioned. So the sibling rivalry is a big part of the book of Obadiah that should help us understand the message of Obadiah. Edom, the nation of Edom, living in the mountains, the stronghold, looking down on Israel. They took advantage of Israel while they were in distress. Edom um, started as Israel's brother, Esau, brothers with Jacob, but grew into murderers, the nation of Edom. This family feud is not just between Jacob and and Esau. But there are so many in the Bible. If we think for the first murder happened between Cain and Abel, and Cain goes off and becomes a thorn in the side of those who remain faithful to God, creating many who despise and hate God, which the line of Jesus is carried on through Seth. So you kind of have Seth and Cain as rivals. And then with Noah, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, we see Shem being the line that Jesus um, comes through, the preserved line that follows God, and Ham going against and becoming the nation of Moab, and then Japheth um, also going against and not following in the way of God, in the way um, that Shem does. And then further down, going to Abraham, Abraham had Isaac, but before he had Isaac, he had Ishmael. 
And we know how that went with Ishmael going off and becoming a thorn in the side of those who follow God, even and especially to this day. Isaac and Ishmael, family feud, starting small, growing into larger conflicts. Family hearing the gospel. Think of like Isaac and Ishmael, both taught by their father Abraham, who was given the words and promises and covenants of God that only one stayed faithful. And Ishmael went off um, to instead be an enemy of believers. And then we also have Rehoboam and Jeroboam in the book of, of Second King, or in the book of Kings, how Solomon has his sons and Rehoboam uh, has the nation, becomes the nation of Judah, and Jeroboam betrays his brother and has the nation of Israel, that they're both on opposite sides. Their feud becomes a nation split and feuding against itself. We have these family feuds in Scripture. And, of course, the Jacob and Esau one. These feuds in Scripture, family feuds that grow into larger issues. Esau was taught the same gospel as Jacob, but he rejected it. Now, second layer. These family feuds of, and divisions can be traced to every other nation. If you think of just uh, Noah in of himself, that Noah's three sons were the only three sons on earth after the flood. And so from that generation, all those who were not of the, those who weren't of the line of uh, Shem went against him. All the nations of the earth can be traced to these family feuds that then have now resulted in Christianity and in the name of God being attacked from all sides. Now, while the people of Israel received judgment, here in verse 15, very important verse, that the day of the Lord is near for all nations. They are all deserving of the same judgment, these family feuds expanding out. Which lead, This should lead us to asking then the important question, what can we glean from the judgment and warning described in Obadiah specifically? Now, we have trouble relating to the divide between Jacob and Esau, or do we? Now, I'd like to tell a horror story a little bit. When I was in college, it was a great time for me to go to other churches and to see what they were like and to go to some other denominations too and experience what those were like, to see what I liked about churches and worship styles and preaching and stuff like that and what I didn't. It's a great time in college. Now, I was planning on going to another church, a part of our same denomination, a PCA denomination, and there was one in Lincoln Park in Chicago. And so I was like, okay, cool. And so I, you know, looked up online before and saw his PCA, cool. And then the Sunday that I was going to go, I looked up on my phone, Lincoln Park Presbyterian. I put it in, and I go to this supposedly place that is called Lincoln Park Presbyterian. When I went in, I quickly found out that it was not a PCA church, but a PCUSA church. Now, for those of you who do not uh, know the denominations too well, 
PCA and PCUSA split around the uh, 1983-ish. That um, the PCUSA split off from the PCA and have gone their own way ever since. A kind of family feud divide there between our denominations. So going to a PCUSA church, I didn't really know what to expect. And I went in, and on, you know, there's a table um, in front of the, the congregation, and on it were a bunch of feathers, a bunch of multicolored feathers. I'm sitting there. I'm not, I didn't go to church with anyone that I knew, so I'm in this strange church with a bunch of strangers, and I don't exactly know what's going to come next. And there's this weird table with all these multicolored feathers, and the pastor comes and begins the sermon uh, asking a little girl to come up and pick out one of the multicolored feathers, any color she chose. And she picked a nice blue one. And then the pastor said, so we're going to be talking about angels today, and I want to dispel the myth that angels had uh, wings with feathers that were white because they could have been any color uh, imaginable, that we don't want to push the idea, uh, the racist idea of the past that angels had to have white wings. They could have been any color, blue, yellow, black, brown, red, any color. And I was like, what is happening? But even before the sermon started, we get to um, reading the Lord's Prayer. It's like, okay, our, and then in the bulletin, it had in parentheses, Father slash Mother slash Creator. And even as reading through the Lord's Prayer, prayer, I noticed there were things taken out. There were things switched around, other words added in. I was like, what is happening? And then we have the uh, sermon about angels and talking about them. And then towards the end of the sermon, the pastor says, you know, some people think that they have guardian angels, and that's such a great thing. And talks about all the other things that people think of with angels. And the pastor said, you can believe whatever you want about angels, or none of it. You can believe in the supernatural, or you don't have to believe it exists at all. You can believe in miracles, or that you know, angels can do miracles for you, or you don't even have to believe in miracles at all. The Bible is what you make of it. And I'm there like, what is happening? I'm freaked out of my mind. And uh, after the sermon, I talked to the pastor. I'm like, so what in Scripture do you hold to and what do you not hold to? How do I understand this book? What do I throw out and what do I keep? And the pastor said, whatever you want. It's... It's yours to, to make of it. <sighs> Yikes, I was very much afraid. And I uh, did not go to the church the next week, but instead accidentally went to another PCUSA church. Another denomination, another split off, another family feud resulting in the main message of this, the sermon that I went to at this next church. Their main message was that Jesus wasn't a racist. That's true. That, I want to affirm that right now, that that is true, that Jesus wasn't a racist. But the main message of Jesus was not, don't be racist, was not, I'm not a racist. His main message was the gospel, the good news that he has come to bring forgiveness and to sacrifice himself for the lost, for his own, for his sheep. That is the message that Jesus came to give and to go to this church and have it so focused on proving systematically throughout the Gospels why Jesus wasn't a racist and nothing else is a truly horrific event.
denominations are a big thing in America, and we can see the parallel to Obadiah of looking at the family feud and that people in churches split off to believe their own gospel, their own truths. They pervert the gospel in small ways. The disagreements and arguments from the, between Jacob and Esau, I mean, they were kind of big, but it was just between one person and one other person. But those disagreements and those arguments and the differences in beliefs grew and grew and grew to where they became so hostile, nation against nation against each other. And that's what happens oftentimes with denominational differences. We split off and then become increasingly hostile and, and change and become different so that eventually you can get some denomination will get to the point where they don't even say that this is the word of God. Family feuds leading to these divides and the judgments against Edom, against those who have betrayed their brother, their family, these judgments are upon them as well. Now, it is so sad to see that those who call themselves the church of God or people who are a part of the church, they obfuscate the gospel to make it about different things. You know, the, the prosperity gospel, that if you believe in the gospel, you'll get whatever you want. Any amounts of money, good things, blessing, that's what the gospel's all about, prosperity. We have a, a, a social gospel trying to desperately appeal to the desires of people in our day and age. And then we have the legalist gospel, the works-based gospel like the Roman Catholic Church has, where you have to do these things, you have to follow God in this way. And one of the big issues of the, the Roman Catholic Church is they put the church above the Bible. Huge, huge issue. A split off from the family over a small, seemingly small thing leading to huge issues and uh, attacks against the church, the true church. There's also the problem with um, other denominations and people who not just obfuscate the gospel, but step on the messages of the Bible by changing it, by reforming it in ways that they want to, and then pridefully claiming that the Bible is what they make of it. And not just the Bible, but God is what they want him to be, or her to be, as some have changed things. This pridefulness, this selfishness that Edom had in their state living on in the mountains and then coming down to pillage the nation of Israel. This pride can be in the hearts of those who have betrayed the family. Judgment will come on them like Edom. But that's not us. We don't. That, those are warnings for other people. Not anyone in this room, surely. But these are warnings for us because how often, especially in more reformed denominations, do we think that this is the church, this is the real church, and everyone outside of our denomination, everyone less reformed than us, they're not part of the church. They are the betrayers of the family. They have gone off. You know, Baptists, what? And having these crazy ideas that, that we are better than them, these prideful and selfish ideas. What was the sin of Edom? Pride was their biggest one. 
how easy is it for us to be prideful and to cast away others in other bodies of believers, other members of the family, other people from other gospel, Bible-believing churches and say, we're better than you, and having pride in our denomination. (sighs) In the new heavens and the new earth, there will not be denominations. There will be those who are written in the Lamb's book of life and those who aren't. There's one church, yet we need to realize the ways that we don't act like that, the ways that we are arrogant in our positions, the ways we, uh, and the, the warning for Edom is a warning for us to not separate yourself from the family of God. To say, you know what, I don't need the church. I can study the Bible on my own. I'm going to do my own thing. Or churches saying, I don't like what, the, what other churches around me are saying that I'm teaching wrong or doing wrong or trying to hold me in discipline. I'm going to do my own thing. In Acts 15, we have the great example of the Jerusalem Council, a doctrinal dispute coming up about um, salvation kind of a works-based following the law or faith-based salvation. This disagreement happening in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And the church meets, all these little churches meet together to talk about this doctrinal issue. They debate heavily, and afterwards, a decision is made, and this decision is accepted by all the other churches. They're humble, and they submit to the um, authority of those wiser than them, to those who have debated and discussed this issue, to remain the family of God. We need to not separate ourselves from the family especially because we are exiles just as the people the God's people in the book of around the book of Obadiah were exiles we are exiles as well we don't have a promised land that we inhabit a national uh, government uh, established by God that we follow no we are our exiles too we need to stick together and remain with the family and remain strong, not isolating and pushing other people aside because they have slightly different beliefs about baptism or about um, Calvinist versus Arminian. I'll be honest and say that I have been responsible for uh, attacking other people in the family of God. Um, when I was younger, I was very much what they call a caged Calvinist, where you hear about predestination, you learn about it, and then you start attacking everyone else who doesn't believe, and you start challenging them and going crazy, fighting other people in your family. The gospel is not something for us to start punching people over or with. No, it is something to bring us together, a truth, a hope to bring us together. Now, we cannot let the gospel be, bring harm to the rest of our family. It is a horrible thing to not speak the truth in love. So if we don't speak the truth in love, we're likely to separate ourselves from the family and hurt this family of exiles that we belong to. Now, that is the warning from the book of Obadiah to us, not just to others who change and mess with the gospel to have completely abandoned the family, but also the call to us in the family 
to watch ourselves, that we are not hurting the family, but instead bringing the family closer together. Being friends and loving and caring for those who are part of other churches, who are part of other denominations. Being able to have unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what is core. That is what's foundational to our family. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is our foundation for the family. Don't get tied up over other issues lest we start attacking and looting pridefully our own people. Now, there is hope in the book of Obadiah, and there is hope for us. The first part of hope is hope in the judgment against evildoers and against those who have wronged the church wronged the family of God. Those who have broken off and preached their own selfish gospel that denies and spits in the face of God, the people who preach that gospel will come into judgment. And the other nations and other parts of God's family who have, inst- who have long ago betrayed God, they will be brought into judgment. That is a hope for us, that there will be justice delivered. As it says in Obadiah 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. But this, the other part of hope in the book of Obadiah is a hope for the promise of God that the kingdom shall be the Lord's, as the book ends with, that the church of God will remain. It will burn continually. It will keep on going And that we have a hope to look forward to of when God comes and brings us together out of exile. And from there, we will reign with God as our king, ruling from sea to sea, the kingdom being the Lord's. That even though we live in a divided and fractured world, a world that wants to attack Christians and attack the God that we serve, that we have a hope that in the end there will be judgment and that the kingdom of God spreading from desert to mountain will be the Lord's. So in conclusion, hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the foundation of our family. Do not break off and abuse your brothers and sisters out of your own selfishness. At the end of the day, the church should not be divided but unified as one family, living as exiles amongst those who need the hope that we have in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, you are sovereign over all affairs of man, and we need your sovereignty to bless us. God, we are weak. We are foolish. We go our own way. We need you, Lord God, to tell us how we should live, to advise us on what we should do, how we should treat others around us. And we need, God, your blessing to be throughout our entire lives. Bless us each and every day. Bless us with opportunities to do good works and to do good and to be loving and kind to others around us. Bless us each and every day. Amen.